Minster Town Hall Forum, Voices of Conscience from an Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I am the senior pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, and I will be moderating today's forum. The forum originates from Westminster Church in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. I'm very pleased to welcome David Gergen as the third speaker in our fall series of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. We feel especially privileged to have a true Beltway insider with us during this exciting election week. <laughs> David Gergen has been a fixture on the national political scene for the last quarter century. He has served as advisor to four presidents, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. He was a reporter covering the Carter White House and a campaign aide to George Bush the other George Bush. We may be the first audience in America to hear what his new job will be under the next administration. <laughs> Whosoever it will be. David is joining us today after a whirlwind week, as you might imagine, covering the election in his current capacity as editor-in-large for U.S. News and World Report and commentator for CNBC and the NewsHour with Jim Lehrer. He is also a professor at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. David's new book, Eyewitness to Power, is a fascinating account of presidential leadership. What makes a president great? Just in my lifetime, I have seen the criteria evolve as outside influences such as the media and political action groups have changed the way we view the presidency. David will speak to us today on the seven core elements that a leader must possess in order to be considered great. As we will hear, some of the core elements are internal, the sort of moral compass that we still expect from our leaders. Some are of the more external variety, such as the ability to mobilize followers. I know that I speak for all of us when I say that I very much look forward to hearing about his experience in Washington, his comments on the current situation with the presidential election, and what we may have to look forward to in the next administration when all is settled. Please join me in welcoming David Gergen. Thank you, Reverend Anderson, and uh, thank all of you here at the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I'm honored to walk in the footsteps of so many distinguished people who have come here to speak to you in this forum. I'm especially honored that so many of you chose to join us today on a blustery day here in Minneapolis. Uh, but we have much to talk about, and I'm glad to see you. Ordinarily, I might, uh, I think, talk about my book, Eyewitness to Power, but all of us over the past 72 hours have been eyewitness to a dramatic, historic turn of events here in our national elections. And I thought it might be more appropriate to direct our attentions to those elections and to what faces the next leader of this country, if we might. As we speak, or as we gather here, the press is reporting that in Florida, the lead that Governor Bush had of some 1,700 votes uh, is down to about 700 at this point. Two-thirds of the counties have reported, or another third left to go, 
uh, we may have the results by the end of the day. There are still absentee ballots to be counted after those results come in. And then there's the fascinating question of whether legal suits will be pressed to try to challenge alleged voting irregularities and whether this will eventually be wind up in the courts and indeed whether we might, as some commentators are suggesting this morning in the newspapers, face another vote in some portions of Florida or in all of the state. I hope that for the sake of the country that the counting alone and the, and, the, and the absentee ballots will resolve this matter. Uh, I'm reminded that uh, some 40 years ago we had a similar election in which there were allegations of irre irregularities in Illinois and in Texas uh, when President Kennedy won the election. Um, there were many who thought that in the city of Chicago an astonishing number of people rose up from the graveyards <coughs> to cast their ballots <clears throat> and perhaps that ought to be challenged in court. Uh, and Richard Nixon, who was the loser by the original count, decided not to go forward with legal challenges. Uh, he wrote in his autobiography that he thought it was important for the country to resolve things quickly and to move on so that the next administration could be shaped and formed and clouds would not hang over the election. Several of his biographers wrote that that was one of his finest hours in a career that always, was not always known uh, for being generous uh, toward his enemies or toward his opponents, that at that particular moment he chose to follow a more dignified route, uh, one which allowed the election to reach closure and people to move on. I hope for the nation's sake that when the voting is counted, uh, one way or the other we will have a winner and we will not face legal challenges that extend far into the night. It will not be fair to either winner who emerges. But we'll have to wait and see how this all comes out. What I would like to suggest today is that whoever wins this election, and the odds favor Governor Bush, but Vice President Gore is still has a fighting chance uh, at the end of the day. Whoever wins this election is going to face one of the stiffest challenges any victor has faced in the history of the presidency to try to bring the country together, to govern, to bring Congress together, to lead. All of this is going to be an overwhelming challenge that I think involves the rest of us as citizens as well. I say that because one of the most important aspects of leadership in the presidency is to get off to a fast start. The window for, of opportunity in the presidency is very, very small. Lyndon Johnson said after he was elected in 1964 by a massive numbers, he told his aides, we have a year. Each day goes, that goes by, we will lose power. And a year from now, we will not be able to count on the Congress to focus on anything other than their own re-elections in the off-year elections. We have to, to hit the ground running. That was essentially his message. And it's a message that has echoed down from one administration to the next. The last president who got off to a, a fast start, some of you may disagree with his policies, but he was the last one to really exhibit strong leadership in the early going. 
and able to guide the destiny of the nation was Ronald Reagan in 1980. He was, he was, he was like Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson got off to a fast start after his 1964 election. Now what characterized for both Johnson and for Reagan, what characterized their elections? Each of them won by a large margin in the popular vote. Each of them could go back into the districts of, their, of, of the other party and say, you know, you may not agree with my policies, but there are a lot of people in your district who agree with me and my policies. And we really ought to work together, and can't you find some way in your heart to come and work with me on this? Secondly, each man had coattails. Each man was able to bring in other people from his own party into the Congress. Reagan won the Senate, and he brought many members of the House in with him. And thirdly, both Johnson and Reagan, in their victories, had a policy mandate. They had a clear signal to the American people that the agenda they had set forward in the campaign was one that was embraced by a majority, and therefore one that the Congress should enact, or should act upon. In each case, the president, the newly elected president, could go to Congress and say, I understand not everyone here agrees with what I am proposing, but I'm the only person here who was elected by all the people. And in my election campaign, I set forward two or three clear goals. Everybody knew what they were. They had a chance to say yay or nay. And in, and in voting yay, they sent a signal here to Washington that we should proceed with this agenda. So please work with me. And that, could be, that carried strong appeal. And what I would suggest to you in this case is that whether the winner is Bush or Gore, neither man will have any of those accomplishments to bring to the Congress or bring before the people. Neither of these men will have swept the country with a large popular vote. Uh, even as we gather here today, in an election that drew over 100 million votes, they're separated in the popular vote by less than 100,000. We don't know at this point whether Vice President Gore will continue to be the winner of the popular vote or whether when all the absentee ballots are counted in California and Oregon and elsewhere, in fact, Governor Bush will emerge with a popular vote. What we do know is that neither man won 50% of the popular vote. What we do know is that neither man had a resounding victory. The country is split right down the middle. We're divided in so many different ways. We're divided in part by income. The higher the income, the more Republican the vote. We're divided in part by education. The lower the education, the more Democratic the vote, except when you get to postgraduate studies. And then, as you can imagine, all those PhDs and everybody, they voted heavily Democrat. <clears throat> Where is Tim Penny? <clears throat> he can tell us about academics. <clears throat> We're divided by race. Whites voted heavily Republican. Blacks voted overwhelmingly Democratic. Governor Bush after that convention in which there were so many minorities on display, wound up with a smaller percentage of the, of the black vote than Bob Dole had four years ago. 
he increased, the, he increased his Hispanic vote, the Hispanic share, but went down on the black share. We're divided as well by where we live, whether we live in large cities or small cities. In cities of over 500,000 population, the Democrats won the presidential race. They got 75% of the vote. In cities between 50 and 500,000, the Democrats got 60% of the vote. In cities below 50,000, the Republicans won 60% of the vote. We wound up in an election in which half the people who voted said that if Al Gore were the president, they would either be concerned or scared. Similarly, we wound up in an election in which half the people who voted said that if George W. Bush were the president, they would be concerned or scared. It was a mixed message on, on, the, on the policy decisions as well. In many, many states where Governor Bush won, his, one of the critical elements of his agenda, the major tax cut program he is putting forward, was listed way down on the list of priorities of people who voted for him in terms of what they would like to see done with a surplus. So we have a country that is heavily divided. Neither man won a big popular vote. When it comes to coattails, Al Gore can claim something of coattails. The Democrats picked up four seats in the Senate and perhaps a fifth. We still do not have the results out of Washington. They picked up just a tiny amount in the House George W. Bush certainly can't claim to have coattails given those results. But in fact, we have left the Congress narrow, as, as, as evenly divided as the country itself. In the Senate, it's 50-49 at this point. Only three times in the entire history of the Republic has the Senate been that closely divided. The House of Representatives will be as closely divided as any time in the last 45 years, and depending on the results, we may have the narrowest margin in the House of Representatives since the Civil War. Congress is extremely closely divided. Neither candidate can claim that he has swept the country and had coattails. And finally, neither candidate can claim that he has a mandate. It's just, it's just very clear that in the voting this time, neither man captured the country's imagination with his program. In many, many instances, the votes were made more on the basis of personality than on program. Now, what this means is that the president-elect, whoever he may be, emerges from this election weakened. No matter what happens in Florida, if, if Governor Bush wins this, there will always be a perception among Democrats that somehow they got cheated out of it in Florida. What happened to those 19,000 votes in Palm Beach? the votes that were disqualified, votes that normally go heavily into the Democratic camp. Many, many people have a hard time imagining the voters of Palm Beach, Florida, voting heavily for Pat Buchanan. <laughs> <clears throat> the last time a number of us looked, some of Pat's speeches were still being translated from German. <clears throat> <clears throat> So there will always be that lingering question. Just as many Republicans thought they were robbed back in 1960, there will always be that lingering question among Democrats if, if Governor Bush is proclaimed the winner were they that they were robbed this time. And I can tell you, if the Democrats go to court with this, 
or if this thing is turned around through some kind of court decision, there will be Republicans who will stand on their hind legs for a long time to come, proclaiming this was not fair. I think, unfortunately, sadly for the country, there are going to be question marks hanging over the outcome, no matter which way this comes out. And frankly, it's not fair to the winner. Neither one of these men was responsible for the voting process in Florida. Voting in this country, just, as, just like our court system, has always had a rough sense about it. There have always been irregularities in our voting. We just haven't paid much attention to it because usually the results are so overwhelming one way or the other that we don't need to get into the micro investigation of what happened in this particular ballot box or that particular ballot box. But if you went into any state in the country, you probably would find these questions, but it's been true of Florida for a long time. So the winner, sadly, is going to emerge somehow with this question mark over the victory that's there. That's tough for someone to come out of this. Now, beyond that, think about it this way in terms of the politics of it. The Congress of the United States this closely divided. Each side is going to look upon the next two years and indeed upon the next four years as a struggle, as a continuing struggle for power. Each side is going to claw away to see if they can't somehow get the upper hand. Traditionally in American politics, we have, a, we have one party that's a strong majority party and one that's a minority party. As V.O. Key, the political scientist, one, once put it, one party is the sun and the other is the moon. The moon always lives in the, re in the reflected glory of the sun. And that kind of politics has allowed us to reach a certain kind of harmony in our legislative activities, a certain kind of balance, a certain comedy between the parties. Because the minority party has understood that the pendulum has to swing in a big way in order for it to really have a chance to govern. But when it's this closely divided, something we haven't seen since the late 19th century, then you have enormous friction in our politics. In the late 19th century, which was similar in the same way, the parties clawed at each other regularly. It was a, it was a mean, dispiriting time in our politics. A lot of good people didn't go into politics at that time. Sounds very familiar, right? It was a Teddy Roosevelt who went to Harvard where the elite said they didn't want to have anything to do with politics. They didn't want to get involved with it. It was, it was an arena that somehow was corrupted. He went against the grain and said, no, no, we have to bring reformers into politics. And he was willing to take it on and help to bring on the progressive movement uh, back in the early part of the 20th century. But the last part of the 19th century, our politics almost stank with the, with the sort of the, the, the poison that existed between the parties, and that's because they were so closely matched. So it's very, very likely that each party is going to be at the other one's throat before long. Think about this if you're a Democrat. If George W. Bush gets elected, for the last nine presidencies in a row, the newly elected president, after two years in office, has found that his party has lost seats in the midterm elections. If history is a guide, and it often is, two years from now, if George W. Bush is elected, the Democrats have a ch strong chance of picking up seats. 
That means they could take control of the Senate when a lot of Republican, vulnerable Republican senators were up, and they could take control of the House. Now their incentive then is very powerful to look after themselves and not look after the best interests of the country, to look after their own political interests, take the House and the Senate back in the year 2002, and then scramble to find a candidate who can go up in 2004 and take the whole thing back, and then they can be off to the races with a lot of reforms. They can reform all the institutions they care about. From a Republican point of view, it works just the opposite. If you're a Republican, you say, if we get the White House, we get the House, we get the Senate, that will be the first time we have done that in half a century. Oh, you have to go all the way back to the first two years of the Eisenhower administration to find a time when the Republicans simultaneously controlled the White House, the House, and the Senate. And their view will be, let's use this time to push forward our agenda, because this is a golden opportunity, one we work for all our lives. Let's not let it slip from our grasp. Let's enact our agenda. And more than anything else, let's make sure we hold on to power two years from now. Each party, then, has a huge, huge incentive to protect its own over the next two years. And usually protecting your own means you're not protecting the best interests of the country. You're not trying to work in a bipartisan way. You're not trying to sort of see if you can reach consensus. Usually it means you pay lip service to the notion of getting along. But down below the surface, you do what you can to gut the other side. That's the way politics has been practiced in Washington for low too many years here in the recent past. So we have a real challenge for the next president. I think it's, it's been a long time since the, the, the mountain head is so steep as it is for the next president. And again, I think it involves us. Let me just tell you about the next president and I'll talk about us for a moment. For the next president, it seems to me the, temp the temptation is going to be to take sides with your party. If you're George W. Bush, to take side with the conservatives who, after all, mobilized the armies that helped you win the election. They have been rather quiet over during the, during the course of this election period. The NRA, the Christian Coalition, and the others have been rather quiet. But they did put their troops uh, out there at the ballot boxes. They did help him get elected. There is a cultural conflict in this country. Some believe a cultural war. Their temptation is going to be to join up with that group and press forward Supreme Court appointments and the rest. On the other side, if you're Al Gore and you finally eke this out, you have an obligation you will feel to the AFL-CIO, to the NAACP, and to the others who worked so hard to get the voter uh, numbers up, and they did a superb job getting a black vote up in this election. And you're going to feel a very strong obligation to work with them and forget the people on the other side. But I would just argue that for the sake of the country, whoever wins this, if they want to get something done for the country, are going to have to the, the winner will have to resist that temptation. The winner is going to have to reach out a hand to the other side and say, if we're going to get anything done, we have to work together. Because we don't have the votes on either side to get serious legislation done in the next two years or the next four years, just on one side alone. Progress is only going to come if we have a consensus, if people work toward a consensus. Now, let me tell you, there are those on Wall Street today 
who believe the best thing Washington can do for the next two or three or four years is to be deadlocked. Gridlock is reviewed favorably in Wall Street. Well, their view is, listen, if government gets too active, they always mess it up. And if they, can just, if they just don't do anything and stay out of the way, we can have a thriving economy. Look at the bond markets. The bond markets get scared if they think the Republicans are going to control everything and cut taxes too much, or if the Democrats are going to control everything and spend too much. That's bad news in the bond markets. They see more inflation coming from that. And the equity markets prefer gridlock. They, the equity markets basically would prefer a Republican president, a Democratic House. That's, and from their point of view, less, the less change, the better. But from the country's overall point of view, I think that may be right in the short term from a financial standpoint. But in the long term, the country needs to resolve some of the challenge that we face without waiting. Whoever the next president is, let's say he, he, not only he survives this challenge, stays in office, and then gets elected to a second term. Before he leaves the White House, the first baby boomers will begin to retire. We are that close to that wave of baby boomers hitting the retirement system, hitting the Social Security system, hitting the Medicare system, and all of these other systems we have set up to provide safety nets and to provide help for those who are retirement. All of those systems need repair before the baby boomers retire. We are not ready to deal with the costs of the baby boom retirement. We have to look at the social security system, we have to look at the Medicare system, and we have to prepare both of them for the baby boom retirement. And that may well happen in the term of the next president. It's critical then that both sides be able to work together similarly. If you look at the other needs of the country, whether it be education or prescription drugs or patient's bill of rights, or any number of other issues that you can think about, they are pressing in upon us. And more gridlock is not in our interest. What's in our interest is to see if we can reach some solution, some sort of consensus, and, and move on. Maybe it's not the best consensus, but at least it starts us down that path. When the health care initiative of the, from the Clinton administration, which I, in my judgment they were courageous to put it forward, I think it was wrongheaded in its the way it was put together. But when it failed, when that health care initiative failed in 1993-94, we failed a lot of Americans in this country who did not have health insurance. And the number of Americans in this country who have, do not have health insurance has gone straight up since the failure of that health care initiative. It would have been so much better had we reached at least partial agreement on health care back in 93-94. Yes, it would not have been the perfect solution. But the perfect is often the enemy of the good. And what's best is to go ahead and strike a solution, see if you can't get somewhere, and then move on. And my suggestion to you as the next president, it's for in terms of leadership, instead of answering that siren song over on the right side or on the left side of the political spectrum, what's important is to try to bring this country together and see if we can't have, as Governor Bush says, a fresh start, a new season that is that is, that, is, that is not so characterized by the cynicism that we've had of the past. So I think that the leadership is going to come from someone who says, I'm prepared to reach out, I'm prepared to open work with the other side, I'm prepared to have them here at the White House, and I want to sit down and see if we can't hammer out some solutions together. 
but i just like to add this final point and i'll stop it also it seems to me that this election leaves responsibility in our hands as citizens too we may have sent somebody to the white house but we haven't settled anything in this country we are so closely dividing ourselves that we have given somebody, whether it be Al Gore or George W. Bush, the responsibility of the presidency. But we haven't given them the tools to get the job done. Neither one of these men is going to have the power or the glory that's required to work and go forward. And what I would suggest is whoever the winner is, because we, the citizens, have been so closely divided about what we've chosen to do here, that a special responsibility falls upon us to treat the winner, whoever it may be, with a greater generosity of spirit and a greater sense of understanding that that individual is going to need. If the winner acts in a generous spirit, if the winner comes out of this and says, I want to bind the country up, it seems to me our responsibility is to respond to that call, to say that we have an interest in this too, because there's going to be a temptation out across the land to maintain our partisan divisions, to maintain our ideological divisions, to maintain our economic divisions, our educational divisions, when in fact we need to have a, a view toward our leadership that if they're act willing to act in the right spirit, then we're willing to embrace them and understand that the winner may stumble a few times, but we don't immediately upon having the winner stumble, we don't say, throw the bum out. And you think back to the early days of the Clinton administration, the mistakes he made, he was declared dead within weeks of taking office. He never had a honeymoon. And some of you may disagree with what Bill Clinton stood for. Many of us disagree with what he obviously ultimately did. But we, it is very difficult for any, any president to govern, whether he be a Democrat or Republican, if the country is not willing to give him an opportunity to lead. If the press will just back off and let somebody try to lead the country and not try to be so you know, cynical from the day one and so invasive and so, uh, you know, reaching for that opportunity to declare somebody dead before they even have a chance to take office. And if the other party will back off a little bit, and if we, the citizenry, will say, whoever wins this deserves support in order to get started, and let's see if we can't get this process going. As much as the next president needs to have a fresh start, we, the citizens, need to have to declare a fresh start, too because we have a responsibility as well. It is not enough just to go to the voting booth and say, well, I did my part. Now it's up to them and it's a spectator sport from here on out. We'll sit on the sidelines and say, it's up to you guys. You go settle it, we are all bums anyway. That's not the spirit in which we're going to come together as people. So the leadership that all of us call for today and that we so much need as a people also has to come from us. It has to be something rooted in us that we have a faith in the system. We have spoken as a people. We spoke with a mixed message. But in the, in the, in the months ahead, I think all of us have a responsibility, whether some of us have the privilege of writing or speaking out in the public airwaves, to say we have a responsibility to act 
with a spirit of generosity, of understanding, and respect for those we have sent to public office. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, David Gergen. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. I am Tim Hart Anderson, moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is David Gergen, who has just spoken on the topic of eyewitness to power, the essence of presidential leadership. We feel especially fortunate to have David here after one of the most hotly contested presidential elections in modern history, when our minds are very much on the subject of presidential leadership. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, I would like again to thank the McKnight and Star Tribune Foundations for their sponsorship of today's forum. David, if you would return to the pulpit, we will begin the questions. Leading off with the first one is a question about the impact of the third party or third parties on the U.S. political scene, particularly in this most recent election, and perhaps looking ahead. Well. Uh, what an appropriate place coming to Minneapolis <coughs> to talk about third parties. <coughs> third parties have often served this country well, and I won't name names or people or, or reform movements, uh, but in this instance, I, I have to tell you, there are a fair number of Democrats who feel that with some justification, uh, that the Ralph Nader campaign at the end of the day uh, cost, may have cost their man the election. In Florida, uh, Mr. Nader got 2% of the vote. That 2% would have been enough to, if it had come Gore's way, would have been enough to make Al Gore president. Uh, you can find those same kind of numbers in other places like Oregon where the votes are still being counted. Michael Dukakis, you remember Michael Dukakis in that famous uh, debate when Bernie Shaw asked him the question how he, about his wife being raped and what would he think about the death penalty? He said, I'm just not in favor of the death penalty. And he had that sort of extraordinarily mild-mannered response. Michael Dukakis has said in the last 24 hours, if he sees Ralph Nader, he's going to strangle him. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> And I think he captured the mood uh, of a number of Democrats. I, Ralph Nader, it's a, it's a free country. Everybody has a right to, to, to campaign as they choose. But there are a growing number of people who wonder whether this had more. This trip had more to do with ego than it did with the environment, or the, or, or corporate corruption, and all the rest. I leave that up to you to judge. Uh, you're a better judge of it than I am. But I don't think there's any question that Ralph Nader uh, grievously hurt. Uh, the democratic chances. Do you think the election situation we're having right now is a wake-up call for our political system in some way? Can you comment on that? I do not think it's a wake-up call in the sense that we, we've had a number of them already which have, should have alerted us to the fact that our, pol our political system is, if it's not broken, it's, it's darn near broken. 
and that uh, we're not getting the results out of it and the leadership out of our political system that we deserve as a people. There are many, many sectors of our economy, well, the private sector of our economy, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons that we're, we are doing so well as a, as a people, financially or economically, is that in the private sector, in one company after another, people have learned to run those companies well. And we've had very strong leadership as well as a, a well-educated workforce and the rest. But it's distinguished this country. It's given this country an enormous amount of uh, vitality and dynamism. And our, and our government, our public sector, does not, is not keeping up in that sense. Now, I think that's in part due to the fact that a lot of people are disengaged, in part because there's so much, the, the, the system is so corrupted by money that many people no, no longer feel their voice matters. Uh, and a lot of people have dropped out. You know, after all the reports about these long lines at the voting booth on Tuesday, the fact was that the, the, uh, the turnout was still quite modest. It was, just, it was just modestly above what it was four years ago, and it was less than it was eight years ago. The turnout this last Tuesday was less than it was in 1992. It was just over the 50% mark. That's hardly a ringing affirmation of the democratic process by the citizenry. Now, I think there's one other part to this, and that is when you talk to the young, I have the privilege of, of teaching these days, uh, and uh, I spend a good deal of my time in Cambridge, actually, and I teach at the Kennedy School, and I talk to kids around the country, and I will tell you, we have one of the most idealistic generations coming through our colleges and universities today that we've seen in quite a long time. They're much more idealistic than I would say people in their 30s. They very much want change, social change in the country. They're volunteering in record numbers. They're spending time in prisons, out with the homeless, tutoring young people. They're doing a lot of things, and, there's, and, there, and there is a new, uh, as Reverend Anderson, I think, would attest here at Westminster, there's a real hunger for, uh, for religion and for spirituality. Spiritual, there's a spiritual awakening among the young. It's quite powerful. About a dozen years ago, Billy Graham came to Harvard, and it was treated as a yawn on the campus. He came just a few months ago, and students literally slept out all night on the steps of Memorial Church in order to have a seat in the pews. These young people are looking for something. They are, they are hungry for community, for a sense of engagement. But they're turned off by our politics. They, re they reject our politics because they think it does, not, it does not speak to them, and they think it's a corrupted system. I have a daughter who's in medical school today. She's 27. In the last election, she told me a number of her friends were not going to vote because they thought they would be compromised by voting, by participating in the system. If we're really going to turn our politics around, it's going to mean that, that our politicians and all of us have to speak with an eye. We have to awaken that idealism and, and show young people that politics can be a noble endeavor. It can be an arena in which important changes are made. Whether you're liberal or conservative, this still can be a noble undertaking. And we have to appeal to their idealism. If we do that, if we can get the young people back into the system, that will awaken our democracy too. One of the things that happened in this last primary season was that Bill Bradley and especially John McCain did appeal to that idealism. 
And it's one of the reasons the young people got back into politics, because it was people were speaking to them. They ran it, they were too independent from their parties. And they went down in the primaries. But they showed us something about the way the people who stand for convictions and appeal to the best, the better angels in our nature, as Lincoln would have said, uh, can bring people back into the process. I introduced John McCain to Kennedy School. He came through there last December. Young people flocked to hear him. They were eager. They sat eagerly listening to him. And when it was over, they just wanted to touch him. And they did that because they saw in him something authentic. They saw a hero, a, a genuine hero, and he appealed to something in them. And that's where we have to go with our politics uh, in order to make this work again. Now a question about uh, strategy and tactics of uh, Vice President Gore. There's been criticism for uh, Vice President Gore not involving President Clinton in his campaign more. Uh, how do you think the result would have been affected by the President's greater participation? Also, does the above criticism directed at Gore from the Democratic Party reflect a deep dissatisfaction with Gore within the party? Among the activists in the party, there is a, there is a, a, a strong sense of disappointment about the Gore campaign. Uh, they felt, uh, the activists feel today, that with the kind of economic growth we've had in the recent years, the 5% growth, uh, and with a president who, while not personally respected, is still politically very popular, that this was essentially a laydown, that they should have won the election. All of the academic models for who wins showed that the incumbent party under these circumstances should win the election. So the very fact that it's this close, teetering as it is, and, and the prospects still favor Governor Bush, has left many Democrats uh, dissatisfied with the quality of the campaign. Uh, in my judgment, uh, the Vice President did make a mistake uh, by separating himself out so entirely from the President. Uh, in three campaign debates, he never worked, mentioned the name Bill Clinton. Uh, the strongest card, his trump card, his ace in this campaign was the record of the past eight years the economy, as well as the social record. It's not only that we've created so many jobs and the inflation rate is so low and the stock market is quadrupled. It's also the fact that the, that the divorce rate is stabilized, teenage pregnancy rate has gone down dramatically, the uh, crime rate has dropped, the welfare rolls have dropped. There's so many other indicators of, 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 of better social health the kind of indicators that Bill Bennett was pointing us to some eight years ago, decrying properly. You know, we're in better shape than we were. And to have ignored all of that or to act as if it didn't matter uh, was to me a mistake. I think he threw away his ace uh, in, in the game. And I have to say, I think that there was some sort of psychodrama going on between the two men that I don't think any of us can fathom uh, as we like to. There are all sorts of indications that, in fact, the relationship was never as warm a relationship or as friendly a relationship as perhaps we thought. There are indications that either there was an embarrassment on the part of the vice president or he was angry that maybe he'd been lied to during the, uh, the turmoil over impeachment and everything that we all remember so well. That some, and, 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 and perhaps that he had that, that he had a psychological need to do this on his own. 
to show that he could do it by himself that he essentially walked away from the president i think i think in turn the president frankly from what i understood feels hurt there was a part of him that was angry during the campaign and i think it was difficult for him because he thought you know i i helped to bring this fellow along and here we are and we should be doing better than this so it's there is there is i don't know what the strange how how formal the strains are but when the new york times reported uh during the uh flare-up in the middle east and when the vice president rushed off the campaign trail a couple weeks ago back to the white house when the new york times reported something that none of us knew and that is the vice president had not been in the white house since may that after all is where his office is uh that he had not been there since may i think it suggests it more than suggested that there was a strain in the relationship that was uh, it's sort of sad to see frankly is there discussion going on among leaders in the news media about their responsibility to the civic good in this new era of cable news internet access etc and if so what are they saying to one another well there is a discussion but i can't tell you that it's drowning out everything else uh there is a discussion among those who would like to see a reform there's a reform effort underway that uh, bill kovich who was uh, headed up the neiman program at harvard uh he's a he's former editor of the new york times the atlantic journal constitution with well named fellow named tom rosensteel who was with been with the los angeles times and is now with the pew uh, uh foundation they've been trying to push for higher standards in journalism more responsible journalism uh, journalism which you know they, they published studies saying journalism reached its nadir uh, and I think uh, Kovic has said it was the worst moment or worst time he'd seen in 40 years when, when all the, uh, the controversy broke over Monica Lewinsky uh, in that time. And I think that there is a recognition among many serious people in the press uh, that, this, that our public discourse has deteriorated and that the press has, in, in fact, played a role in that. Now, what's happened is that, in part, uh, there's been a loss of faith in government or a loss of respect for many public institutions and a greater cynicism on the part of the society in general. There's a lack of, def lack of deference toward almost every institution in our society that's occurred gradually over the last 30 years. But imposed upon that, too, has been the new technologies which have brought us cable news and all of the other kind of cable channels. And what's happened is we slice and dice the audience. Morseless struggle. The way many have found to get your attention is to pander to you. It's to pander to your baser instincts, to titillate you, to provide gossip, to provide more sex appeal, to do a lot of things, to have food fights, uh, to be more intrusive, to be, you know, to be more outrageous, to be more provocative, to have people go on the air who say things which have no attachment to reality. You know, they're just they just go out there to say them. We 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 have put a lot of people on television. I'm afraid now in some in some places who seem to not, they have very little going for them except for the fact that they shout well. Um, I mean, in journalism now, it's, it's sometimes said there are some stories that are too good to check. <clears throat> <clears throat> and, and the result is, frankly, that we have a journalism which is not all that it should be. But I think, and I think that the pendulum is almost swung, which I think it's going to swing a little farther. But what you see in the history of journalism in this country is we go through these pendulum swings and we go through a bad patch and we're going through a bad patch right now. But there's going to come a time, and your question suggests it, when, when you, the consumer, say we've had enough, put, please put on responsible journalism and people will start to, 
to go back to the more responsible programs. And as that happens, it will create an incentive for others to give up the junk and start producing higher quality programming. But we're not there yet. We are not there, and we will not be there, frankly, until we change our viewing and reading habits, until we start reading more seriously and start wanting to hear more serious things on the radio and on television. As long as the provocateurs can get the audience, the financial incentives all run that way, and it's very, very hard. But I, th I, I, I don't despair. We have been here before. We went through this with yellow journalism way back in the late 1880s, 1890s, and then they, they got the New York Times up and running in a serious way. Mr. Salzberger did, and they created a newspaper that was, that was a, of, of terrifically high value. And we went through a long period from the 1930s, essentially, up until the 1960s, when we had high-value journalism, when we had the Walter Cronkites and Eric Severides and, and others who were, um, I think, graced our pages, and we had Walter Lippmann and others. I think we can get back there, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to require some change. Uh, and if the government is well run, by the way, one of the things we know is we get a good period of journalism when government is well run. When the, the more people in politics are respected, the, be the better the journalism. So this is something we all have to work on together, but we're not there yet. Moving now from the domestic scene uh, to foreign affairs, how would you define a fresh start for various overseas issues, say, particularly the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Well, that's a good question, because this is uh, the Palestinian-Israeli situation has deteriorated very badly. It's going to be I'll take a long time to put the pieces back together there. Uh, the peace process, if, if it's not finished, is certainly in abeyance for a good long time, because the basic uh, underlying assumption of the peace process was that as you integrated uh, more fully and you set up these independent lands that each side could trust the other gendarmes and security forces uh, to be fair-minded and, and keep the peace. And now on both sides that has broken down. The Palestinians don't trust the Israelis at all in terms of their, their, their security forces. They think they come in there and, and shoot unarmed Palestinians. There's, there's been carnage among young Palestinians over recent weeks. And at the same time, the Israelis have lost faith in the Palestinian security forces. Uh, to keep peace, we would not have had Ramallah and those and those uh, those two brutal murders of the of unarmed Israelis uh, that we saw with those hands held up with the blood. Uh, had the Palestinian forces done their job, nor would we have the destruction of a synagogue there, which was sacred uh, to the Jews. Uh, and there, so therefore, the, that has broken down. What the United States can do about this? The best we can do right now is to try to go into holding action and try to keep things from blowing up and gradually see if you can work out some very modest arrangements. And one of the things I would think that if the Bush administration, if there is a Bush administration, one of the first things they would need to do is to make sure, even as they try to bring that together, that they have an emissary like Secretary Cheney or Vice President-elect Cheney, if that's who it becomes, uh, perhaps he would be the best, to go right away to the Middle East and go in and talk to the Saudis, go talk to the Egyptians and talk to the Jordanians, as well as the Israelis and the Palestinians, to see if we can make, make sure this doesn't become a general conflagration. Well, the last thing we need right now is what's still localized to spread into more generalized war or hostilities, uh, because it will not only mean an enormous amount of bloodshed and the breakdown of a carefully constructed peace in the Middle East upon some of these countries, but it could also bring $45 oil, and it would tip this country into recession. We have a lot at stake here. 
to keep peace in the Middle East that, that's vital to our own interests. So I do think this is something that's going to uh, demand the attention of the next administration, whichever one it is, but especially if it's a Bush administration. We have time for just one more final question with a brief response uh, regarding a prediction to the, to the next presidential election. Same candidates? New contenders? Four years for God. Please, God help us. Um, um, <coughs> if, it's, if, 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 if George W. Bush wins, candidates you can, you can look for in the next race potentially involve or might include uh, speak, uh, Mr. Gephardt, Richard Gephardt from the House, uh, John Kerry from Massachusetts, potentially Joe Lieberman. I'm not sure that Al Gore would get back into this. And there's one other, <coughs> a, a, a new senator from the state of New York. <coughs> uh, and if it's on the other side, it's, it's, if it's on the other side, it's, it's wide open. If it's on the Republican side, if Gore wins, I, I just can't. I think there's so many governors out there, some very, very attractive governors. Uh, who could possibly run, but I think we'll have to wait and see. But since that's the last question, let me just close with this one thought. And, and that is I want to come back to this central message. Somebody, someday soon, and hopefully within the next 24 hours or so, is going to be proclaimed President of the United States. Somebody is going to be the 43rd President of the United States. I, th I think all of us should essentially ask, that that person not only lead us well, but we should ask of ourselves that we help them get started. At the end of the day, all of us are in this together. Colin Powell's favorite story comes out of the Persian Gulf War. On the night of the Persian Gulf War, to the eve before it started, people with television cameras went around and talked to American troops. Everybody thought the American troops were going to step into the jaws of death the next morning. Sam Donaldson, irrepressible as ever, had a television camera and he started going around to some troops at an American camp. And he went up one to one black soldier, young man, and said, are you scared? And the young man said, no, I'm not scared at all. And he said, well, Donaldson said, why aren't you scared? And the young black soldier said, look, at, he said, he pointed his finger around the camp. He said, look at all these fellows. And he pointed to some white soldiers. And he pointed to some Hispanic soldiers. He's pointed to some black soldiers. He said, I'm not scared because we're family here. We're all one family. At the end of the day, when the election is over, we're still, in this country, all one family. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. For those in our radio audience, you've uh, missed a standing ovation here in Westminster Church. David Gergen spoke to us today on Eyewitness to Power, the Essence of Leadership. We feel privileged to have had David Gergen with us during this very exciting week in our nation's history. Our winter-spring series of the Westminster Town Hall Forum will begin in February 2001. We're looking forward to a fascinating array of speakers and hope that you will be able to join us. Thank you for coming today. Those who wish to receive a signed copy of the book and purchase one, please do so off to my right, your left. Thank you, David.